Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. In today's episode, we're going to play you an excerpt from a panel discussion that Columbia hosted about overuse injuries in youth sports. The discussion was fascinating, and the experts assembled to comment drew on a wide range of experiences and knowledge to explain exactly how this dangerous trend began and how, if possible, it can be reversed. But before we start, just keep in mind that this was recorded at the Columbia Club of New York, so though the sound is clear and audible, it can sometimes be a bit muffled. So just keep that in mind. Anyway... Juliet Macker, who is a Barnard and Columbia Journalism alumna and is now a columnist for the New York Times Sports of the Times, was the evening's moderator. You'll hear her posing questions throughout. She kicked off the discussion by asking, what is the problem that we're facing here in sports? And when did the panelists first notice that there was a huge problem with sports injury on a youth level in this country? Here's what they said. Uh, So I think the problem has been getting... Uh, bigger and uh, more widespread over the last decade, probably even a little longer than that. But we That's Beth Shubin, who is also an alumna and is now the assistant professor in the yeah, Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Weill Cornell Medical College. A lot of people attribute it to um, uh, passing of Title IX, at least for women. That's sort of when a lot of people attribute the uh, more prevalence of women's athlete athletic injuries starting because they were uh, allowed to play sports at the same level and, and encouraged to play more. Um, but I think that there is, uh, at this point over the last decade, we're seeing an earlier subspecialization. And I think that's what's really causing a lot of the problems that we're seeing, at least in medicine, is that whereas people used to participate in especially the more athletic kids used to play three or four sports during the year. Uh, by the time they're in middle school, a lot of them are selecting into one sport and specializing just in that one sport in order to get the advantage of the coaching and the training and all those things that we need to have them get to get to the next level. And that has produced a, a, a young population that doesn't get a rest. They don't get the chance to recover from the season's injuries because the season is the whole year. What kind of injuries do you see, um, Chris? Do you do you? I don't know how. What is the youngest kid you've ever seen, and what kind of injuries do they come in with because of this specialization? Yeah, great question. So I see uh, patients where I have about five or six exam rooms, and it used to be that they were all filled with adults, and they had their injuries, and they were playing golf, and their shoulders were sore. Now they're filled with kids. And uh, I do have some patients in the room here. So if I kept you waiting, it was because of the kids ahead of you. <laughs> this is Dr. Christopher Ahmed from Columbia's Engineering School, who is now the head team physician for the New York Yankees and an attending physician at New York Presbyterian. If you know how old they are and what sport they play, you almost know what the injury is before you go in the room. So during baseball season, 13-year-olds are in the office with elbow pain in its so-called little leaguer's elbow. And I'll see maybe 10 kids in a day with little leaguer's elbow. And the diagnosis is always accurate. We talk about the diagnosis with the patients and the families, but we um, we haven't really been able to figure out why as much. We have a lot of theories about it, which we can talk about here, which would be fun to talk about. So those are baseball players. If you see somebody else, like it's football season now, if you see a high school football player in the office and it's a knee injury, it's almost always an ACL. Not always, but it is so common. So we have a problem with ACL injuries. So it's sports-specific. 
and it depends on where they are and their how old they are. So, when did you start seeing that happening? That that the younger kids were coming in. I mean, you haven't been a doctor for for that long, but when, when did you suddenly? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for for a whole two years of your of your medical <laughs> profession. Uh, I mean, did you, was there a couple of years there where you just saw a, a shift, or you know, or, or was it just slowly where you saw a couple? It, it you know, changes like, to me like the way our phones are changing. When you had the big bulky phone and it didn't have all these smart functions on it, and now it's crazy what you could do with Siri and make your car start and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so um, when I first started, I'll give you an example: taking care of draft evaluations for the Yankees. Kids get drafted out of high school. They're going to be players for the New York Yankees. My job is to say, healthy, not healthy. It used to be this, healthy. X-rays look good. MRIs look good. Now high school kids look like they're 30 years old. It's incredible. A 18-year-old kid today, compared to eight years ago when I was doing this, looks terrible. So it's happening right in front of us during our time over the last five to ten years. What? When you say it looks terrible, what, what does that mean? Can you give us some examples? So a throwing elbow with all the stresses that we use elbow as an example. Um, after years of throwing, if you look at somebody who's been a major league player and now he's a free agent and he's in his late 20s, there'll be big bone spurs, arthritis on MRI scan. The ligament of that helps stabilize the elbow will, will look thick. It'll have signal in it, which means the colors of it don't look normal anymore. And when you look at a pristine, beautiful young person's elbow, it looks as normal as can be with no arthritis, no bone spurs, no loose chips, no loose anything. And the ligaments all look good. Now the younger kids, they look like they got all this damage with all those features at a a very young age. So injury in youth sports has become a serious problem. And the natural question to ask is, what role do the parents play here? And how can they help mitigate the problem? Glenn Myers, who is a former Columbia baseball team captain and who used to play for the California Angels and the Minnesota Twins, offers his response. I think the last line of defense is, is the parents. The parents really need to, to educate themselves and advocate. You know, they're the ones who know that what the kids should or shouldn't be doing. And, uh, you know, really what I do is I'll always ask the questions. You know, when, do, when did you pitch last? When are you pitching next? Um, if they play on my summer team, I don't really allow them to play on another team because I want to really uh, make sure that uh, I set up a program that's uh, in the interest of, the, of their safety, you know, in terms of throwing. So um, that's what I do. And any parents I can grab, I say, you know, I'll tell them when they ask me, what's a better team for my kid? So we'll give, them, give me the scenario. Does one focus on, on player development? That's a good option for your kid. Or, does, or is the focus on winning? If the focus on, is on player development, that's good. I will go with that team. You know, and make sure you understand you know, what's going on and speak up. Because the kids won't speak up. The parents have to. Okay. But sometimes the parents don't speak up. And that's sometimes where a physician or a coach might typically step in to help. And for that, Chris Ahmed has an interesting way of gauging the level of a parent's intensity, as he puts it. So I have a little project that I'm going on that's going on in my office where we're using equivalent of cage criteria. You guys don't know what cage criteria. If you've ever been asked, it means somebody suspects you of alcoholism. It's a series of questions that if you answer positively, it means that you have such a high likelihood of having a problem with alcohol. 
we as parents in the office and make observations, and we are defining that these intensities of parents are so amazing. So things like this. If the parent wears the same uniform as the kid coming into the office, <laughs> they're scoring points. <laughs> if they got the hat on that is the same as the kid, they get more points. If they use the term we, like we got hurt in the third period, <laughs> that scores more points. And if they interrupt the kid, because we always talk to the kid first and say, what happened? And as soon as the kid starts talking, if dad pipes in and interrupts him, they get even more points. And then if the dad or the mom says, he's got a game tonight, that's a big problem. He's in the office today with a problem. How's he going to get to the game tonight? So that, that's the parent side of things. And it's not that there's ill will. They just want an intensity. Why is that why they're so intense? There's so much money in this game now. The amount of money you can get for a college scholarship. So if a kid in football season right now dislocates his shoulder and you say, hey, you need an operation or you can play and maybe get a scholarship and do further damage to your shoulder, I'm talking about several hundred thousands of dollars at stake. So we have what's called shared decision. We'll say this was what could happen, but you may have lifelong problems with your shoulder if you try to play in the playoff game that could get you a scholarship that could allow you to play in college and get an education, you may have permanent pain in your shoulder. It's really complicated. And then we have the coaching aspect of it too. And we have coaches on the panel and I have so much respect for coaches. I have coaches that are here that are friends of mine also. The intensity of coaches to win now is amazing because they're all at threat for losing their job. So. Um, just this season, I bet we could all name a coach who lost their job within the last uh, several weeks. If coaches don't win, they lose their job. If a player is hurt but can still perform, coaches try to get them to play. So I know of one patient who came into my office and said this. Uh, I was pitching. My elbow hurt. I told my coach. He said, I need three more outs. He went in and continued pitching, and he injured his ligament and needed surgery. So... He, in fact, is suing the university and his coach for not respecting his complaint of his elbow hurting. So as a coach, and, and I think we're all coaches in some capacity, we have so much power to change that, call it abuse. And then if we say it's the parents, the coaches, well, what about the players themselves? So the players say this, hey, if I blow it out, all I got to do is get it fixed. I mean, in fact, I'll be better if I get it fixed. Matt Harvey got his fixed, and look at him. So there's this attitude of, I'll just do it until I get hurt, and then I'll eventually get the surgery that makes me better because everybody else is going to have that surgery. Might as well get it done now. That type of cavalier attitude is so damaging, and it's us, so through educational meetings like this, can I think we could start to get a handle on it and then try to make these messages a little bit more clear for exactly what you're asking, because the downstream effects of this are tremendous. And we often talk about the physicality of it. Okay, their shoulder's banged up, they have arthritis. The number one reason why a kid doesn't play soccer again after an ACL injury in college or whenever is not because the ACL is not working. It's because the traumatic experience of what Jim said of nine months of recovery, they say, I am never going to do that again. And I don't want anybody else to ever go through that again. 
So that psychological component is extremely powerful that they take uh, take with them. So the, the the quick answer was, yeah, they do lifelong damage. They need shoulder replacements, like Reggie Jackson needed a shoulder replacement two years ago because he's got bad shoulder arthritis from what he was doing as a player. And um, but the psychological component, I think, is also important. Something the panelists kept going back to again and again was the issue of specialization. Having your kids specialize in one sport from an early age seems like the dynamite way to ensure that they eventually excel in that sport and will maybe have a better chance of securing a college scholarship or even going pro. But the experts disagree. Depending on the sport, specialization can be incredibly damaging to the body, not to mention the fact that that's putting a lot of eggs in one basket. At least that's how Jim Gossett, the Associate Athletics Director for Sports Medicine and the Head Athletics Trainer for the Columbia Lions, sees it. I worked the ABC camp, which was sponsored by Nike. It was the top 220 basketball players in the country for free were sent to Princeton University for a week-long camp. They did never... They never touched a basketball until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Everything else was based on college prep, how to do time management skills. What are you going to have to do? Because at that time, it was one in a million that you could make the NBA. So you better figure out plan B, okay? So if you're not going to be on the court, what are you going to do with your life? If you look at the NBA rosters, the number of people that have actually ever been on an NBA roster are infinitesimally small compared to the number of kids that play basketball in the United States. And now we've expanded it to the world. We've got more and more international players coming over here, which makes it even harder for a U.S. kid to make a team. So, so when does a kid have to specialize in order to get a college scholarship? What, what age do you think they have to say, like, you know, I'm going to go for basketball in college. I, I want to try to get a scholarship. I want to focus on, on this. What age is safe, I guess, um, I don't know when they should start. If you actually look at the research, this is going to surprise people. Uh, one study of NCAA athletes found that 88% played multiple sports growing up. The average age where they start to specialize in the sport they play in college was 15. So it was actually high school. So a lot of people assume that it occurs much earlier than that. It doesn't. Um, it, something that blew up on the Internet, I think it was two years ago, was... Urban Meyer at Ohio State, they broke down his recruits. 42 of the, of the 47 of his first recruits played multiple sports in high school. Only five specialized in football. So we have this notion that you need to specialize. It's not actually true at all. That makes sense. When you have, uh, when you're in more than one sport, you don't tax the same part of the body repeatedly. There's a time for rest and recovery, and so your longevity in that sport is going to be much better. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so it may actually be protective, uh, and probably is protective in the long run. The real question is, can they get to where they need to go without playing that sport all year? Uh, and that's more of a culture issue that we have to address. But, but from a physical issue, they are better off. There's things about specialization that are truly negative. Beth mentioned that some sports don't lend themselves to uh, non-specialization. Gymnastics, figure skating, there's certain, even um, uh, even some, some specific sports like tennis, 
it's hard to say I'm going to be a gymnast and then I'm going to go play field hockey at the same time. It just doesn't work well. So certain sports are always going to be specialty driven. But, and, and those sports are always going to be plagued with injuries and the burnout that goes around with that specialization in tennis and gymnastics and figure skating is extremely high. We hear all these stories about the psychological problems of these amazing athletes and then at some point in their lives they crack. But <clears throat> certain sports completely are enhanced by it. So Derek Jeter is the example I use. He played uh, high school basketball and baseball and found the time to do it. Is one of the most accomplished baseball players in the in our history. So, and Mariano Rivera is an unbelievable soccer player, and his kids play soccer. So, there's different muscle uh, activations and things and skills that then actually make you a better baseball player if you did something like ran track and learned speed work, things like that. So, I completely believe in it. Having said that, uh, when it comes to my kids, what am I going to have them do? You know what I do. I ask my wife. <laughs> Smart man. I think one of the other points uh, that's important to keep in mind with this also is that sports like gymnastics, figure skating, um, that have more of a, let's say, art component, focus on technique much more than some of the other sports at an early age. Um, one of the groups that, that I was with earlier this summer at NYU looked at the fact that athletic trainers and the kind of things that sports has been doing for decades now has entered into the theater and dance uh, model. So again, if you were a Rockette and you got hurt five years ago, 10 years ago, you got shipped off to some doctor, you're now on workman's comp, you kind of fell into this yeah. empty system. The director, which is the coach, is like, either you dance or you're out of the line, so on and so forth. Well, they have taken on having support now. So they do conditioning in the off-season. They work on specific rehab rather than just sort of randomly going to find someone on their own. But with that said, early on, dancers do not progress unless they can perform the technique properly. Where in a lot of sports, if you can hit well, if you can throw well, even though mechanically you're terrible, you will advance because the winning will probably increase. So then they get to this point where they wear out. They start to break down. Again, everybody's pretty resilient early on, but after years of doing this, eventually they break. Dance, on the other hand, stays with its foundation. If you don't know how to land properly, you don't move on. So you learn how to land, and, and that's why if you look at some of the training that's going on today in sports, it's sort of gone back to that, that it's much more functional motion. You know, are we biomechanically more, you know, efficient at certain things, which hopefully will enhance injury reduction and stress on the joints? All right. So technique is key no matter the sport. The stronger your technique, the more equipped you are to avoid missteps that could lead to serious injury. But what if you've done everything right? What if you've honed your technique and you've made sure to play multiple sports to avoid fatigue? If you do all that, you should be pretty well off, right? Well, not if the rules of the game change on you. Here's Jim Gossett again, using the 2013 snowboarding documentary, The Crash Reel, to explain the issue 
with some sport game changers. Basically, it's a story about family out of Connecticut. Um, their son was one of the top snowboarders, and within 50 days of the Olympics, was training harder and harder. They changed the height of the pipe. So basically, at one point, they were at like 12 feet, where they would come off the pipe, do their trick, and come back into it on the half pipe, this sort of bowl that they're in. It then went to like 20 feet. So now, all of a sudden, you're falling 40 feet, and this individual uh, that's portrayed in, in the movie falls 40 feet on his face. So severe head trauma, uh, permanent brain damage. Several other uh, people that were injured uh, doing the same activity all go back to the same thing. And again, maybe it's just their, the way they're programmed. They all want to go back and do it again. They all want to go back to the activity. Even though they can't walk, even though they can't feed themselves, all they think about is returning to that activity. So people like seeing crashes, okay? They like the risk, and that's what's happened in the X Games and, and a lot of these other sports. So I think, yes, the idea that, you know, we're progressing these because it adds excitement. You know, to go around once, yeah, okay. To go around four times, now five times, it adds to the excitement of that sport, and again, it's the marketing, it's the television, it's getting more people involved in the dollars that that, that generates. Yeah, that I see at the Olympic level a lot, especially in the Winter Olympics, where they're adding all these, really, they're actually just crazy, crazy sports. Cra sports that are crazy and then become even crazier because people want to see more tricks. And uh, it's actually the athletes who speak up. I mean, they're mature enough at that point, maybe after seeing their friends have major head trauma, head injuries, some of them have actually died doing aerial gymnastics or aerial aerial snowboard um, snowboarding and aerial skiing, that they say, you know, they go to their international federation and say, you know, this is nuts. We have to we have to stop doing this. We don't, you know, we're fast skiers, we're we're interesting aerial skiers. You don't have to make us do these crazy things just for television. And um and I think that's one thing you can tell your kids is you know, when you get to that level, you could speak up for yourself. You don't have to do these crazy things. If you all band together, you could go and they're actually gotten the rules changed at some point. Not necessarily in, in um, ice figure skating where, where people are doing quads on the men's level and getting injured left and right, but, but on the, those other levels, the, the athletes are actually speaking up for themselves and they're changing the rules because of it. It's interesting because of our specialization talk that we keep redefining what our boundaries are for what we can overcome. And it's not just in sports. Some of it is risk-taking, but some is what are we capable of doing? So chess players who are grandmasters today at age 10 are getting it, and they're better than grandmasters 30 years ago who it took them 60 years old. And the same is in music. Pieces of classical music, say, playing on the violin, that kids can play today, the best musicians of our time 50 years ago were having a hard time playing. So we are getting better and better at everything that we do, and we're breaking records. Like, when do you stop breaking records? Like, sooner or later, you just can't run any faster, right? At some point, you just can't do it. So maybe. I'm not sure. Is it true so, that you can? <laughs> I know there's a, there's a whole, there's a book out now that... People are trying to run uh, faster than a two-hour marathon, training training to do it. And I guess people said in the in the in the past, like well, nobody's ever going to break two two o five in the marathon or, or two ten in the marathon. And you know, people actually did it. So I don't I don't know if there is a limit. 
it seemed impossible to break the uh, four-minute mile. It seemed impossible the world said it could never come, like sending a person to the moon. How is that ever going to happen? And the same year that one person broke the four-minute mile, 17 people in that same year did it. And it took 20 years for it to happen. So once barriers get broken, training methods change, all kinds of things happen. So whatever happened when somebody could do four from one, all of a sudden, everybody did four after that very quickly. Everybody just find they emulate the training methods and the um, and, and everything around it. So our athletes are bigger, they're stronger, they train better, they eat better, they sleep better. There's all these things at GNC that they can drink and eat and <laughs> online and all this stuff. So I uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see even more of that happening. So. Risk taking is one, but what are we? What are we physically able uh, to do in our lives is is really amazing as we watch our ability to, you know, to challenge ourselves. Very amazing. During the Q and A portion of the evening, unsurprisingly, the biggest question on everyone's mind seemed to be, what are coaches on a collegiate level looking for in their athletes? Diana Kasky, who is the head of women's swimming and diving at Columbia was asked specifically about her recruitment preferences. The question posed was an interesting one, given everything that had been discussed in the panel about the importance of technique and versatility. The question posed was this, if there is an athlete who has poor form, but a fast time, up against someone with great form and a little slower time, would there be any preference in recruitment? Absolutely. If if you swimming is a little bit tough because a lot of times you can know you can know who you need based on time. So whereas in many sports there's a lot of travel on the road, a lot of times I can say, oh, well, they're 52 in the hundred free and 151 in the 200. We want that, and I might not ever actually see them swim before that. So, but to your point, for sure, um, someone who has good t- technique but might be not quite as fast, you, you know that they're probably not going to face an injury in their career and that you can work with that. Um, so a, an interesting point, though, about um, swimming recruiting. So quite often we'll have some families who have purposefully, you know, held their daughter back a little bit in terms of numbers of hours of training. And um, so but they're not quite at the level that you know, then I have other people who are faster and it's a big challenge because in your, in your mind, you're like, well, yes, probably that person is, is going to be able to progress further in college, um, and drop more time and maybe eventually end up beating that, the faster recruit. But then when you just look at the numbers, I mean, it's a difficult challenge, um, because maybe it's four seconds in a 200 and it's, it's a judgment call. So I'd love to say that I always take the one that um, whose parents have been smarter, but I don't know that I can 100% say that. How so. can we get you to do that? <laughs> I know, I know. I, I think no, I'm, I'm serious. <laughs> yeah. We have to talk to the AD or something. I mean, how do we get coaches to 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 acknowledge, you know, good smart training and parents who aren't crazy and kids who aren't going to, you know, not be walking when they're 30? Do do you? How, how do we do that? What's the first step? <laughs> Anybody? <laughs> No, this this is the problem. I think I think part of it though is to again kind of retrench and have sort of a realistic approach to what's going to happen. So we take the Columbia student athlete population as an example. 
percentage-wise, how many are going to go on to the next higher level beyond Columbia? What are the individual's goals? Again, you know, do they use use the sport to get into Columbia and then they're just going to do whatever and they love their friends that are on the teams and they build all these relationships, but ultimately I'm going to Wall Street, so you know, when this is over, it's over. I think one of the things that, that I see, and, and this is fairly consistent over the time I've been here, is you have to be kind of realistic and it, and it is sport dependent as to where are they going to peak within the four years that we have them. We may still have to make athletes out of who we take. Again, rowing's one example. They get a lot of walk-ons, people that have never sweat in their lives. And now all of a sudden you put them into one of the highest energy output sports that exists. Some will survive. Some will say, I'm going to sleep and not get up at 4 in the morning to go row. <laughs> but with that said, they come in as first years. They're at a certain level. You may have somebody that's extremely fast or extremely skillful, but again, are they going to last the four years? Are they going to continue to excel? Are they going to get stale? Are they going to just become mediocre? I mean, a lot of things can happen. I see sort of a genesis where they start here, they progress, and probably the target should be their junior year. That's where you want to see the peak performance because then senioritis kicks in. That void of Am I going to get in law school? Am I going to get in medical school? Where am I going to go? Am I going to get that internship? Do I have a job? There's all these things that start to mess with their minds and can skew their athletic performance. So again, there's a lot of unknowns you know, that are happening that they're anxious about, and then priorities start to change. So if you can get them to peak, I believe, by their junior year, keep your fingers crossed that that's going to continue with their senior year. I wonder, do the Ivy Leagues have a different, not not a different standard, but they do they look at these student athletes differently? How many are going to go on to professional in the Olympics from Columbia? Well, unfortunately, probably not that many um, compared to other maybe Ohio States or Tennessee's or wherever whose football programs or, or college athlete, athletics programs are pretty big. So, do you look at the athlete differently, trying to maybe push well, I think them a little so. bit I mean, less? You look at like Memphis, which made some rule changes by the NCA. I mean, if you don't have one basketball player graduate in 10 years, you must have a problem. You know, I mean, they are, you know, schools of higher learning. The idea is that they're supposed to be progressing. Now, there's been dramatic changes, which I'm sure Brent can <laughs> expand on quite a bit, that, you know, people at Kentucky play basketball for one or two years, and then they sign multi-million dollar contracts. So, that's sort of a different issue that's coming, you know, as far as what happens then. Throughout this discussion, one question became inevitable. How do we incentivize coaches to make smarter choices when it comes to an athlete's health? Or rather, can we incentivize coaches? The responses, unfortunately, weren't very encouraging. Well, I think one of the problems you see, especially with NCA, there's been coaches that literally destroy a program in an institution and then move to another job, usually for more pay or to a professional level. And here's the collateral damage. You know, scholarships are withdrawn. They're exempt from bulls for a number of years. And the school ends up paying a lot of money. But that person moves on. So, again, some of the coaches in, in certain settings are just not held to any 
standards. You know, it's it's basically I'll do what I want. If I don't get caught, great. If I get caught, I'm moving on. So I know I recruit against the, the <laughs> We just brought in um, the NCAA Sports Science Institute people to our association, the Association for Applied Sports Psychology, and. One of the interesting things that came up was this whole concept of coaches knowing how many concussions student athletes have had. And it was a real ethical debate because obviously you don't want coaches asking that because that's a loaded question. But it, it does bring up an interesting, I guess, struggle in the fact that would you treat them differently? Would you give them less opportunities having that information? So I think that's part of the struggle is where do we draw the line? And I, and I think if, if my understanding of it is that the real epidemic is overuse injuries. The problem is it's not just a, I mean, the, the ACL tears are a huge issue, but really what's happening is the overuse aspect. And then how do you, where do you draw the line on an overuse injury? And, and when do we say, okay, enough is enough? There's so much gray area. I think it is tough to make that differentiation of when do you stop? What's the difference between being hurt and being injured? That's a tough question to ask. So I think that's a question we're going to continue to struggle with in some ways. I'm going to think about that question for a long time. I think that's a brilliant question. How do we incentivize coaches to not be focused on winning and all of the features that we have really admire about sports with having championship winning teams to how do we create a health environment that's safe for kids and you can even extend it beyond that you can say what are we in well maybe i should be incentivized to keep them healthy what about their academics and what if we have a team that's doing very well academically what about just character community service all that kind of stuff that we value there's no incentivization in that. In fact, it's completely the opposite. Win it a cheat, win, do things that are so despicable. So that's why I'm thinking about that. I think that's a brilliant question. It's hard for anybody to accept something that says, yeah, we'll lose a few more games, but we, um, we're healthy. How are we going to sell that to people? This podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with over 320,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights to delight the left and right sides of the brain. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out the blog that accompanies this podcast at thelowdown.columbia.edu.